storytelling is not just reportage it's alchemy you know when we tell our own stories and when we create art we have this ability to be able to transmute fear into beauty uh, pain into into pleasure and we become the the kind of tellers of our own narratives hello and welcome back to another episode of the art persist podcast a series by Bosla Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. My name's Georgia, and in this episode, we speak to Shiloh Siv Suleiman. Shiloh is an award-winning Indian artist and founder of the Fearless Collective. Her work lives and breathes at the intersection of magical realism, art, nature, culture, technology, and social justice. She is the founder and director of the Fearless Collective, a growing movement of hundreds of artists replacing fear with love in public spaces and on the front lines of resistance movements. And in this episode, we really talk about everything from her own practice to how the Fearless Collective, through public murals and community support, visualizes a fairer future for all. Hope you enjoy. Being an artist, I often say that I stand on the shoulders of a pretty hefty lineage in South Asia. Um, so there's there's countless pieces of writing, um, of literature, of art that have actually inspired my own practice. Mm. Um, but the one that came to mind for today was actually a poem by an African author called Safiya Elhilho, mm-hmm. uh, who's Sudanese. And the poem is called Self-Portrait as a Map. Should I read it to you? I'd love that. Yes, please. And what is a country but the drawing of a line? Today I draw thick black lines around my eyes and they are a country and thick red lines around my lips and they are a country and the knife that chops the onions draws a smooth line through my finger and that is a country and the tightening denim presses a soft purple line into my belly when I smile like my mother a little black line flashes between my two teeth and for every country that I've lost I make another and I make another. Wow, that is such a beautiful poem. Thank you, Shiloh, so much for sharing it. And thank you for being on the Arpsis podcast. Absolutely. And um, the reason why this particular poem, I think, also made sense to begin with is because self-portraiture is something that has always been quite crucial to my own practice. But also, um, Mm. my mother was a cartographer. And so the the Ah. idea of kind of bringing that together as a self-portrait as a map felt quite appropriate to begin this conversation. Yes. Definitely. And so tell us a little bit about your early life. Where did you grow up and what was life like? Absolutely. So um, I grew up in Bangalore. I was actually born in Singapore because my parents in the 80s um, decided to live there for a little while. So I was born in Singapore, Mm -hmm. but grew up um, primarily in India and Bangalore and um, in Indore in the north of India. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, growing up, I was your classic Aquarian dream child. (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, that that kind of sense of uh, utopic, dreamlike, vivid imagination is something that, despite all of the emergencies and national trauma and personal um, sort of emergencies as well, um, that that sense of of belief and utopic thinking is something that stays with me quite strongly. Um, I started yeah. painting very young. I started painting when I was thirteen years old. Wow, and also actually at a moment of fear where my father left 
um, and suddenly my my mother found herself responsible for two young children uh, with no real mm. career and she began to paint um, and so I started to teach art with her she was teaching art back then and I often say that beauty saved me because mm. beauty became both into the financial backbone but also the emotional um, backbone for our family and Early on, I, I would say in the beginning, our paintings were quite dark, actually. They were full of a lot of abandonment and pain. But the marvelous mm. thing about pain is that it shapeshifts. And we soon realized that, you know, we, we, we were almost alchemizing that into beauty and painting a world that we could then step into. And um, so by the time I was around 18, um, my career started to take off. My mother's career started to take off around the same time. And wow. by the time I was 21, then, you know, beauty had completely saved us. Um, I had a TED Talk, which got just under a million views um, at the tender, mm. age of, uh, tender age of 21. Um, and wow. from then on, it's been magic. Yeah. That is so inspiring. And what an amazing thing to go through with you and your mother, both kind of developing your practices alongside each other. It's really, it must have been so, yeah, just amazing were you kind of drawing on each other's work or was there well, did you both have very different styles um it's interesting because her work it tends to, I mean she like I said started off as a cartographer and yes. with her work it really is a documentation and an archive of um Indian street culture um bazaars mm. the body language the um the typography um of the streets and it's even though our styles are very different she's a miniature painter but what's interesting uh, is that actually I, and I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm painting 60 foot murals in five days usually. Yeah. Um, uh, but what's interesting is that I almost sometimes feel as if she paints these scenes and I paint inside of those scenes. Um, mm. So I'm actually on the streets working with these communities and she documents these communities through her paintings. Amazing. And before we get on to the talk about the Fearless Collective, can you tell us a little bit about your own artistic practice? Absolutely. Um, so my practice is split in two. Um, on one mm -hmm. hand, there's the fearless work that I do, which we'll get into, but it's huge um, public monuments um, across the mm -hmm. world that we work um, on with communities. It's a participative art project and it's a very public practice, right? And it is really about building yeah. out a movement. Um, but simultaneously, I've also found much quieter, much more intimate, sacred, personal practice. Um, I do a lot of work with kind of at the intersection of art and technology and magical realism. Mm -hmm. So use a lot of um, technology, be it more recently AI or, you know, the, the NFT world or um, interactive mm -hmm. installations, biofeedback technology, um, new media storytelling. So that's kind of, that's a, a separate wow. universe. And I often um, say that that work exists in a way almost as if the wound didn't exist. If we didn't mm. have um, people's movements, if we didn't have protests, you know, that is that magical realm that I would inhabit where I make um, trees that breathe with you or, um, mm -hmm. you know, huge installations that beat with your heart or temples that you can wear. Um, so it is it is almost a, a kind of parallel world where the wound doesn't exist. And um, it is really yeah. an exploration of intimacy, magic, sensuality and femininity. It's so interesting. And I think, you know, we hear so much about AI at the moment, for example, as this kind of 
huge threat that's going to change our world but it's really interesting to hear you talk about it in a way almost as if there's like a a freedom to it or like a, a way to imagine a different kind of world how do you how do you use AI in your own practice um well actually both with the fearless work as well as in my own practice I feel like with the AI work when it comes to the fearless work we use it to imagine mm. perhaps moments that were never documented or moments that mm. that never happened so to almost rewrite our own past and imagine reimagine our own past um like for example mm. right now we're doing a lot of work in the line up to the elections around um women in leadership um political leadership mm. and so you know we we sometimes use apps like midjourney to be able to generate vintage photographs for example of what women leaders mm. could have looked like or um wow. uh, what women cartographers could have looked like um so mm. i think one one part of that practice that i think is really interesting is just the ability to be able to um imagine realities like i said that perhaps were never documented or never existed another part of it for me is as an artist is it's really like a turbocharged tool to be able to to almost interact with one's own imagination um mm. but super quickly and super um it's yeah it's a conversation for me which i think is really interesting yeah no absolutely that's so interesting and so in 2012 you founded the fearless collective mm-hmm. and you say and i quote you uh we believe given the ugliness of oppressions we fight the creation of beauty is an act of resistance Can you tell us a bit about why you founded it and yeah what the circumstances are that made you think I have to found this collective Absolutely so um like I said kind of having lifted ourselves out of our own murky waters and our own fear um and emerging from that like straight spine flowers like almost like lotus flowers mm. I found myself really immersed in this magical world of art and technology and um was traveling across the world speaking at different conferences and in 2012 the protests following the gang rape of a 21 year old girl Jyoti Singh Pandey happened in Delhi mm. and i happened to be in delhi at the same time and went out onto the streets um and it was the first time that i was actually ever in a protest uh, and it was this incredible electric energy out on the streets like i've never really had never experienced anything like that there was so much yeah. rage there was so much power um and aside from grieving the the death of jyoti singh pande we were also telling each other our own stories um and kind of mm. revealing wounds to each other that we had kept carried you know inside of us yeah. gently wrapped away um so we would be out on the streets you know fists raised in protest and then we would sit down on the pavements and we'd tell each other our own stories and it's in that kind of the gentle soft um revelations that we had on the pavements revealing our wounds to each other almost as if we were tenderly opening the buds of a flower i realized that mm. storytelling is not just reportage it's alchemy you know when we tell our own stories yeah. and when we create art we have this ability to be able to transmute fear into beauty mm. uh, pain into into pleasure and we become the the kind of tellers of our own narratives the creators of our own narratives um and simultaneously a lot of the mainstream reporting that i was seeing um was full of fear you know it was don't go out mm. at night because you'll get raped um don't walk on the street um don't attract too much attention to yourself and it felt very counter intuitive to the change that we actually needed to see um yeah 
and uh, as we as we know jyoti singh pande um was given the name nirbhaya which means fearless um mm. because she didn't want her identity to be hidden very often um survivors victims um are then their identities are are cloaked to be able to protect them but she wore her own identity even in her her dying days and um so she was given that name and i put out this call for posters on the internet asking for women to share their own stories um and got a overwhelming response back then it turned into a viral online campaign of hundreds of women across the world um creating floods of beauty while also acknowledging and honoring and moving through their pain um so that's how the the, the project began and um even though at first it was a digital campaign what i realized was that the power of these posters was really in public spaces so because it was an open source yeah. campaign people would print out posters take them out onto the streets paste them up everywhere and um mm. and that's when you know in a country with hundreds of languages we were really seeing the impact of this work um mm-hmm. and i began to paint murals and um and then um kind of formed a very sort of detailed participative methodology through which communities could represent themselves um mm-hmm. and since then i've painted with 40 communities in 16 countries wow that's incredible and just such an achievement after yeah just over a decade and it really speaks i think to the power of of kind of reclaiming the public space actually because mm-hmm. you know no matter where you are in the world public space is such a contentious thing you know it's either it's i always think about that in terms of you know who controls the public space and why for you what's the relationship between art public space and protest a couple of years ago in 2020 i was um at shaheen bag mm-hmm. which was um one of india's biggest protests since the independence movement in 1947 mm. so there were thousands and thousands of people um muslim women in particular who were blocking a national highway against uh, two draconian laws the ca and rc laws that potentially made over 30 million um muslim people um illegal citizens of india or, or mm-hmm. illegal stateless essentially yeah. um and when we were there it was a real reminder that you know art isn't something that is additive to our movements it's actually the spinal column mm-hmm. of resistance movements particularly in the global south and and definitely so in south asia um our independence movement was founded on the poems of sarojini naidu of tagore mm-hmm. um for me even some of gandhi's protest actions like the salt march you know lifting salt out of water as an act of resistance mm-hmm. feels like a performance art piece yes. um and the poetry that also kind of has has slipped its way between borders between india and pakistan be it faiz ahmed faiz or other poets like him um was really what kept the cult, the the magic and the spirit of this resistance movement alive um and being there was really clarifying because you know we've again at fearless we've kind of been going on about the need for art and culture mm-hmm. in activist spaces for a decade now but it was a real reminder that this is not only um something that we believe in but it's actually the inheritance of being a, a south asian organization mm. um so so yeah so i mean i feel like 
particularly in public spaces. I mean, when there is a moment of of fear, like let's say when the Taliban was taking over um, the streets of Kabul, the first thing that they did was paint over women's faces mm. in public space. Um, very often when we talk about the dynamics of power, you know, we talk about gender, we talk about caste, we talk about class, um, we talk about race, but we don't talk about visibility. And often those who are most visible are also the most powerful. Yeah. Um, so particularly on the streets of India, you know, you see the streets here being flooded with political posters, um, with images of Bollywood stars, but you don't necessarily see people who are at the margins who actually live in those spaces. Mm. Um, and so by making those invisible worlds visible in public space, we allow for a kind of discourse and a shift in public narrative, which I believe then leads to shift in public perception, public policy, um, and the space itself. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so it's so interesting and it's so powerful uh, to hear you speak about it. And I, I think, you know, my own experience when I, something that, the, a way that I really connected to, let's say, uprisings that were happening across the Middle East um, during the so-called Arab, Arab Spring was the street art, because actually it was the time where people took back control of of the situation and kind of liberated themselves from you know the various authoritarian regimes if not temporarily but it was still such a powerful way to also visualize what what the people are saying and what what is actually happening in a way of kind of combating what the media was saying you know which is was controlled by the states at the time hi this is Hussam Fazula, co-founder of Bosla Arts. Did you know our latest issue, Beyond Resilience, is now out? Featuring seven artists from around the world going beyond the state of resilience through art, activism, and action. As a listener of the Art Persists podcast, you can get 15% using the code TAPP, all in caps. Order now at boslaarts.com. Now, back to the podcast. One project of yours which I really have looked at a lot and seems amazing is Gota Gogama. Gota Gogama, yes, yes yeah. Uh, which was a rapid response bureau in Colombo and Sri Lanka. Can you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, kind of speaking to exactly what you were saying, you know, the what the the media narrative is often quite filtered. And when you look at public art and culture that's created in moments of resistance, that's when you understand the real narratives. And what we find though, is that sometimes in these movements, the imagery that we see is often ridden with the same negativity that we are actually fighting. You yeah. know, it, has, it almost embodies the language of the oppressor. So be it at the Nirbhaya protest in 2012, I was seeing lots of posters being held up of, you know, um, stop violence against women or hang the rapist, but the posters themselves as well were, images of women being raped or you know cloudy yeah. silhouettes of women being attacked and it felt like um, by seeing images like that you almost fetishized violence yeah um, similarly I would say in Gota Gogama um, you know a lot of the imagery that was being created was quite dark um, if you look at also a lot of the imagery around the climate crisis there's a lot of hopelessness there and we believe that love needs to be the impetus mm. for any kind of um, movement to actually survive 
So the words Gota Gogama literally mean Gota Go Home. Mm. And um, it was this incredible utopic village um, that was formed outside of the presidential palace um, or the presidential parliament in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. And um, it was complete with a library uh, full of books of, about resistance. Um, it had uh, a movie screening theater there was a, a little hospital there there was an art gallery it was a completely parallel universe mm. um and and very much a utopic village um that reimagined what leadership in sri lanka could look like and amongst uh, all of that like i said though a lot of the imagery was still quite dark um and a lot of the words that people were reciting the slogans were, that people were reciting were very much about the crisis at hand which was uh, the rajapaksha government and the economic crisis. Um, but in that, that kind of moment, you know, there's often very little space for an imagination of what exists on the other side. So yes, we know that we don't want fundamentalist leaders, but what do good leaders actually look like? Yeah. Um, and how can we have a, a clear articulation of what we want mm -hmm. as much as we also know what we don't want, yeah. right? Usually we know very clearly that we don't want, let's say, climate disasters, but we don't really know what constructive action or relationship with the earth looks mm. like. So with Gota Gogama in particular, we were focusing a lot of our um, thematic on leadership um, and power and governance and how we wanted power and governance to manifest in the future. Mm. Um, so we brought together a group of incredible um, activists from people and workers movements. Um, there were garment factory workers, there was a queer community, there were sex workers, there were lawyers, um, communities from um, marginalized spaces in Sri Lanka, mm. um, and youth leaders. And we um, got them to all sit on this huge imaginary map. Mm -hmm. um, and we asked questions about, uh, first of all, first acknowledging the fear around our current power structures, mm. um, be it the lack of accountability, the lack of um, distribution of resources, of healthcare, of, or issues with, with power itself. Mm. And having then let go of some of those fears um, through the workshop, we then began, began to articulate what kind of leadership we did actually want, uh, what characteristics, what qualities would these leaders have. Yeah. And some of the answers that emerged um, with the communities we were working with were, again, things that were seem quite simple, but are quite profound, like a leader who listens, mm -hmm. um, or perhaps a leader that identifies with the needs of communities, um, especially communities at the margins, mm -hmm. um, and is able to, to have multiple identifications. One by one, we kind of almost invoked leaders in our own lives that we had witnessed or in historic uh, times that we had witnessed, and we painted at the front lines um, of the movement at Gota Gogama with two Sri Lankan artists as well, Vicky and Minal, um, who are part of the Fearless Ambassador Program, mm -hmm. and um, painted a, an image of um, a queer leader, a garment factory leader, and uh, a sex worker. Mm -hmm. um, and it said, we are our own leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and we also made a, a map of Gota Gogama, this, again, kind of impossible utopic village um, beneath it mm. um, and it was interesting because as we were there having these conversations a few weeks later as we know the the parliament was actually taken over mm -hmm. by um, the protesters um, and uh, Rajapaksha was actually thrown out of the country yeah. so 
we do see that you know sometimes the conversations that we have um and sometimes the images that we create feel almost like portals mm. to a future that doesn't even exist yet but simply by having a vision of it we allow for us to know what we're moving towards yes and what was the reaction to to the mural did did you ever get a sense of like what just people walking past would think of it or say about it um yes absolutely i mean i often say that fearless is not just a visual art project but it's also um part performance art because as we're uh, on the streets we're doing a lot of place making we're engaging in civic dialogue mm. with communities uh, sometimes we have everything from run-ins with mobs to the mafia and in the process of also having these conversations and calling people in rather than calling people out yes. um we we believe that that's also where a lot of the change actually occurs um so the murals often just remain almost as like symbolic totems mm. to these conversations and to these communities but um but it is really the 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 beating heart of this work is really what happens as we're painting on the street and in gota gogama the mural itself was destroyed soon after oh. <laughs> uh, yeah with we, and actually all of gota gogama was destroyed um libraries and and movie theaters oh, and okay. um all of it was was taken down um but um but the conversations remain you know yeah. and the spirit remains and so that's also something that we kind of understand that it, in public spaces when we work sometimes our work is destroyed yeah. um and for me that's not separate to the story that's actually a very big part of the story yeah absolutely i think with all public art it's kind of the nature of it you have to it's it's part of it it's it's always changing why was gota gogama taken down what what happened um basically with the reinstating of the new um leadership structure yeah. they shut down all of the protests as yeah. as we as we know they do and um and yeah so it it was all in a in a minute it disappeared yeah. um, military came to cover the entire space and the mural was destroyed Gosh. along with it Ugh. and so you you work in countries all over the world uh and you work with people and communities living through very different contexts but all all kind of resisting oppression in some shape or another i wanted to ask you what are there some takeaways that you think unify people is there some when you listen to people and you you create work with people what are there any kind of ties in between you know people from different parts of the world that that you kind of really see repeated constantly Um absolutely I mean I think one of the ways that we work is really working through emotional resonance mm. so regardless of whether you are a Syrian refugee in Lebanon or um a queer transgender sex worker in Pakistan mm. or um uh, a garment factory worker affected by the economic crisis in Sri Lanka we believe that we all experience fear we all know love we all know um uh, pain joy mm. beauty um and we we often use that emotional common ground as a way to be able to build bridges between communities and in the process of doing that we've seen um multiple miracles i would say mm. in public spaces you know for for all of the the stories we have about murals being destroyed we also have stories about murals being preserved by um unlikely bystanders as well like um while i was painting at shaheen bagh mm. and this is at the height of you know the drama in a sense with like um uh, threats of violence mm. gunshots 
um, mobs coming in, spies at Shaheen Bagh. I mean, it was almost as if we were, we until until we got there, we were watching a movie and then we stepped in and became one of the characters. Yeah. Um, and while we were painting that, um, of course, the police presence there was was uh, overwhelming. Mm. And um, the entire time that we were painting, we had policemen kind of watching. Um, and as the scaffolding came down at Shaheen Bagh, this is at the height of Delhi elections, where again, like the kind of imminent threat of violence is is very real. Um, it's just on the brink of the pandemic, where mm. then all of these movements were also shut down in India. Um, and as we were kind of taking the scaffolding down from that mural, a police officer came up to me and I was like, okay, great. This is, this is where we get arrested. <laughs> but he came up to us and he looked at the mural and he was just like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Shaheen Bagh has been completely, completely destroyed. Yeah. Every inch of graffiti, every tent, uh, you know, rainbow colored tent that was out there, every art installation that was there, has been destroyed. However, our mural still remains wow. um, on this highway as a kind of unlikely testament to these these women. And that's also why I say that given all of the ugliness, um, the creation of beauty itself is absolutely an act of resistance. Yes, that is an incredible story and how powerful that it remains. And I wanted to ask you as well, if you could just talk a little bit about the the actual process, the technical process of creating these murals, because they are so immense. And you've talked a bit about AI being a factor, but when you when you go to create a, a mural, for example, I wear my body without shame in South Africa, how mm -hmm. what's the process of of actually creating that? So I mean actually AI has just been a more experimental thing that we play with, but mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with our um, mural making process. Okay. Um, with with the murals, we have a kind of immersive six-step um, methodology that we use. Uh, we identify a community that we want to work with. Mm -hmm. um, we have three kind of larger umbrellas of work. One that's lo looking at gender and environment. One that's looking at uh, gender and conflict and war mm -hmm. and displacement. And one that is looking at um, pleasure, sexuality and embodiment. And um, we identify a community partner because it's very important for us to become a platform mm -hmm. for um, people who are doing a very important groundwork in a sense. So we become into like a visual extension of the work that they do. Yes. Um, and like I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, for me, self-portraiture was a, a big part of how I healed myself and how I transformed myself. Mm. Um, and so with communities, we basically take them through a process of self-representation where they they decide how they want to be seen and then they actually um, paint those images. We project those images onto the wall and we paint them. Mm. So it is completely participative. It is at the core of it is really self-representation because yeah. again, you know, very often you would find that journalists will come in and take photographs of let's say Syrian refugees washed up against a shore or mm. um, uh, violence against Muslim communities in India. But we don't often have those communities themselves telling their own stories yes so um these images are completely choreographed and created by the community and uh, the artists who work on it are are actually just hands <laughs> to, to be able to manifest their vision yeah. um and very often what we find is also actually there's a lot of nuance in those conversations mm. because we're also trying to create images that of these communities that don't exist we're not trying to 
shy away from the the pain or the the oppression or the marginalization but we're not trying to glorify that either yeah. um so for example we were working with a group of syrian domestic migrant workers and ethiopian domestic migrant workers in a very gentrified part of beirut mm. and um we when we were asking them you know how they wanted their resistance to be seen at first a lot of the images that came up were more conventional you know like fists raised up in the, the air and holding brooms as like totems of power mm. and um and after a little bit of conversation between themselves they actually came up with a very unlikely image of a syrian domestic migrant worker ethiopian domestic migrant worker and a sri lankan um domestic migrant worker who had all come to beirut fleeing war mm. um sitting in a garden and drinking a cup of tea mm-hmm. and that image says our existence is a, is an act of resistance um and with that particular image you know it's it is a real it's a really radical image even though it doesn't look like radical imagery mm. because um they were really talking about the right to rest so they were talking yeah. about the ability to be able to um enjoy the streets of of Lebanon that they serve but don't ever get to um enjoy yeah and so and have this kind of sense of ease in so it became into a very radical image about the right to rest but um it's this kind of nuance that i think is is really beautiful and very important for us to articulate with the communities we work with yeah it is it's incredible what you do and i think it's really powerful what you say as well about kind of working as you know collectively with local communities and local initiatives because exactly as you say you know journalism or that that idea of of storytelling by going somewhere extracting what you need and leaving it it may tell the news or say what's happening but it doesn't tell the actual stories of the people and and their experiences um absolutely so it's really it's honest it's really really inspiring and amazing work that you do thank you and it's kind of you know it speaks to the also the collective power of of working globally because i think you know mm-hmm. we are such we're we're all connected so much to the internet now and yet still issues are so localized and it's a, this concept of like opening up our eyes to how we can support each other from different parts of the world is so important I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the fearless futures methodology that you've created and what exactly that is. Absolutely. Um so at some point you know we as we were kind of going from peace conference to peace conference mm. um what we realized is especially in the western world we were looked I mean art was looked at as being like I said almost quite additive like yeah. the kind of questions that we were being asked also can art really help with peace and conflict mitigation and um being from south asia but also from the global south it's like yes of course it can yeah. you know like culture and the the collective stories that we tell the um the images that we see completely dictate how we behave with each other yeah. and so at some point it kind of as a as a way to be able to also prove the power of art in resistance movements and people's movements we realized that it wasn't just about creating a pretty poster for an otherwise kind of daunting social or environmental issue but it mm-hmm. was really about reclaiming the imagination and using the imagination as a tool to be able to 
completely reimagine the way that the world functions. Mm. Um, and so with Fearless Futures, it began as a kind of methodology uh, where people, um, again, we have this giant map uh, of a future world complete with everything from future justice systems to future factories to future communities and homes to temples. Um, and uh, we begin conversations with different groups of activists um, where we first of all, almost like children, suspend our disbeliefs about current realities mm -hmm. and um, suspend the issues, just for a minute at least, and um, and imagine what what we want and as my, like I said, a, an articulation of what we want mm. our future justice systems or security systems or border systems to look like. So with that particular methodology, it kind of makes the creation of art uh, less about the aesthetic and more about that reclamation of the imagination. And I do believe that activists are dreamers are yeah. um, who are fighting for a world that doesn't even exist. You know, yeah. at some point, the idea that after hundreds of years of slavery that that all life could matter mm. was inconceivable um at some point the the idea of women voting or india being an independent nation mm. these were all inconceivable to those current realities but it took a leap of imagination in order to be able to make that shift and so with the fearless futures imagination it is really about that activation mm. uh, and reclamation of creativity um and imagination in social movements Yes, absolutely. And I think you're so right. You know, as soon as you as soon as you allow yourself to imagine an alternative to what your your reality is, that's where the power is, because then, you know, it allows you to to then also make the steps to try and make that happen, whether it's on a small scale, personal scale or, or you know, a collective one. And when you when you think about the future, obviously, we've the work that you do is often dealing with communities and people who are going through some of the most difficult situations. And you also mentioned climate change, which is obviously the, the global anxiety of today. How do you see the future? Are, are you hopeful of it? I'm, I'm um, you know, I've been writing a book about fearless and the last chapter of it is called Utopia Unabandoned. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I am absolutely hopeful for it mm. because I think um, having seen some of these incredible movements, having been at some of these protests, I do believe that that this vision that we're all fighting for, it can exist and it will exist. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm I'm extremely hopeful for the future. And in terms of the near future with Fearless itself, you know, we've been thinking a lot about how with the quote unquote oppression that we fight, you know, it isn't it is a very strategic, well planned thing. Yeah. I mean, like the British had two hundred year plans to be able to colonize Asia, mm -hmm. Africa, and, and North America. And I think what, very often what happens is that we, uh, in these utopic idealistic spaces, are often not as strategic yeah. and not as well planned. And um, so with Fearless, we are growing uh, into a movement of artists across South Asia who are reclaiming public spaces from fear. Mm -hmm. Currently, we have 25 ambassadors from um, India, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Uzbekistan, mm. um, uh, and beyond. Um, and the hope is really that we uh, train 
artists across South Asia, but also across the global South in our methodology so that they can create their own fearless collectives and their own murals in those spaces. Mm. And that when there are actually then real-time moments of fear and trauma, like the Pakistan floods, for example, that we we are a counterforce. You know, we yeah. are uh, an, an army of beauty makers who are as um, well-networked, as protected as we can be. And, and that's another thing that has kind of come through as a big reality right now is very often independent artists, um, unlike journalists or filmmakers in moments of conflict, you know, they have institutions like the BBC mm. um, that they can fall back on. But very often independent artists, um, you know, are are in tremendous moments of conflict and find themselves in exile, but with no real protection networks. Yes. Currently, we have two of our ambassadors in exile, um, Chu from Myanmar and Zara mm. from Afghanistan. And um, there are very few networks that actually come to the rescue when artists need it the most. Um, so Fearless is also in the process of trying to understand how we can become into an institution that is really looking for the protection of independent artists in moments of conflict and fear. Amazing, really amazing. And it speaks, uh, I completely agree with you. Um, at Mosla Arts, we also, you know, work with artists who face threats to their artistic freedom, whether that be persecution, censorship, forced exile. And so much of that is about exactly like you said, the kind of, the gap in in support and protection of artists around the world definitely in comparison to journalists even though you know we see that artists poets writers are often the first also to to face threats as well and, and to really need that support so yeah mm -hmm. it's it's amazing and there is so much power in in uh, in having networks as well absolutely Many thanks to Shiloh and the Fearless Collective for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about their work, please find links in the description. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Arpsis podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it wherever you listen. Only with your help can these truly important stories be heard. Thanks for listening. <laughs>